You're listening to Why We Do What We Do. All right, welcome to Why We Do What We Do. I am going to be your reflective host, Abraham. And I'm going to be your currently processing host, Shane. And today we are going to have our most rambly episode ever. But first, what I should say is... We are a psychology podcast. We like to tackle all things psychology related, and we will do that as liberally as we possibly can. Anything that we can call a psychology topic, we're going to spend a little time on. And we have recently wrapped up a series of episodes talking about applied behavior analysis, more commonly known as ABA, and how that relates to considerations around working with neurodiverse individuals, particularly those with autism, but I think across the spectrum of diagnoses that you might see or other differently abled folks, that sort of thing. And today we're going to sort of wrap up our, our thoughts on that. It was a journey, and I don't know that I am personally surprised by the outcome on my end. But I think that it is one of those things where it's uncomfortable to recognize faults in your practice or faults in your like just faults in life, like things where you have made missteps and learning to address that. I mean, that's a difficult thing for anybody, no matter what you're talking about. But, you know, I, I do think that it's particularly difficult for a field that is still kind of maturing. I'm really excited to kind of like explore that and kind of, and also to, to give people kind of a background or like a behind the scenes of our approach to this and maybe some of the struggles that we had kind of walking into this as we were going through this and then walking out of it. Right. So if you're joining us for the very first time, thanks for listening. Welcome to the podcast. And this might feel like it lacks a little context. So you might go back and check out some of the earlier episodes in this discussion. We did eight of them. It, you know, nonetheless, I think this is our self-reflecting on the process that we went through. So it probably will work okay on its own. You just won't necessarily know the discussions that we're referencing if you haven't heard them. So I would recommend you go back and listen to those. But I mean, feel free to stick with us, and and hopefully this will make some amount of sense. Yeah, as we go through it. But you know, I'll actually start. I'm gonna I'm gonna tee a nice softball up for you, Shane. He's at the bat. He's got his his soft bat for the softball. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. And <laughs> I'm using a pool noodle to hit a, a kickball. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> what is an experience you sort of had as we went through this together? That's such a great question. I mean, I so I think my biggest struggle with this was balancing the idea that you can love something so deeply and still feel okay criticizing it in a meaningful way. Sure. Like, I think that that is like kind of a a thing that was a a recurring theme, but I think it's, I think it's very difficult because, you know, personally I've been, I've been working in this field for some time now and have loved, 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 loved the field and the science itself, right? Like love the practice, love what we do, love the idea of helping people and all that. And to spend a lot of time reflecting and turning a critical lens on it felt at first I don't want to say tr- like like traitorous. Like I don't think that's the word. I, I feel like it was one of those things where like I think that we've always kind of done that, but I think that there was something about I think it hit home more than like analyzing psychological stuff, right? Like yeah. oh, like we can tear apart IQ tests because we are not like in contact with that every day, right? Like sure. But to to kind of turn a critical lens on something that you practice and love is a little bit 
more difficult than I think people might realize. I would liken it to the idea of like people who like are fully in love with the United States, like just like the, the United States is the best country in the world and refuse to acknowledge that there are problems in that system and in that crowd. And I think that's kind of the same thing. It's like like that idea of understanding there's a blind loyalty to a field in so many people and knowing that we're going to come a, come against that as we're talking. Yeah, that makes sense. So to sort of go back, I think, a little bit to the the origin of this discussion and how we came to do it at all is during some of our regular team meetings, and I think sort of in conversations on our, our Slack channel and whatnot, there was people talking about people posting online about ABA as abusive or ABA as conversion therapy and a lot of people sort of going after it. Mm-hmm. and initially my reaction was like well that's the thing that's happening gonna leave that alone because we've never wanted to be a behavior analysis podcast Mm -hmm. matter of fact we specifically avoided it um most opportunities that we got because we felt like what we had to say was how we can use that lens to think about the world of psychology right and all of the experiences that that entails. And sometimes that was easier than others and sometimes more difficult. And we have taken on behavior analysis topics a little more peripherally in, in the past though, like when we've talked about positive behavior interventions and support and precision teaching and the history of thinking about Pavlov, which was wrapped up in the beginnings of what eventually developed that was behavior analysis and that sort of thing. Anyway, I got so see so rambly see how rambly <laughs> it's I am. okay no it's good i think it gives context yeah <laughs> yeah so anyway we we eventually kind of decided maybe this is worth taking on and initially it was like let's just do you know we'll do an episode where we do a deep dive on this conversation but i really want to do it right and so when i was looking up i want i want to see what people are actually saying i want to understand as thoroughly as possible what arguments are being made who's making them what are they saying? You know, what, what do they have to, to criticize or, you know, what's their points? Yeah. But as I went through it, I sort of was sort of like, okay, I'm seeing this theme emerge here. This is sort of a point that people are making. Okay. I'm also, I'm also seeing this thing emerge here. This is another theme. And so as I, I basically broke out this discussion into sections of like, this is a thing that's being said, this is a thing and thought, you know, we'll do this big long episode where we'll just tackle each one of these. Maybe we'll split it into a couple parts and then I really felt like going through as I was helping to flesh this out and you were helping me as well come up with some of the topics and whatnot, that there was an opportunity to say, like, let's really give this room to breathe, mm-hmm. room to sort of sit and marinate with people to give a lot of attention to a single one of these where we can take every single argument and not feel like we're rushed and having to dissect it, you know, to feel like we can really unpack it as thoroughly as possible. And then break it out. So we kind of had this meeting of like, do we do this? Like this is committing two months or more to this process. And even now we're planning one more follow-up episode, although it won't, it won't happen sequentially with the end of the series. It was not actually an easy decision. No, not at all. And you know, the thing is, is what right now, what we're doing is we're talking about our own experiences. We go through this, but I mean, ultimately I think that it's worth talking about because I think that we really actively tried to 
address this in a way that did not center our own experiences. Like we really tried to get down to the nitty gritty and have like an honest and transparent critique about what was going on, about the arguments and, and really not take sides. I mean, we really actively worked on that. You know, the big thing for me as we as we were kind of going through this was not necessarily trying to debunk one side or another. And sometimes we'll have episodes yeah. that do that, right? Like some episodes will we'll kind of like, if we're going to talk about conversion therapy, we're going to debunk that right away because it's harmful and problematic. Yes. But ultimately you'll find as you go through our history of the show is that when we tackle topics, we're tackling them in a way to provide information that might be useful or beneficial for people to make decisions on their own or maybe kind of like dive a little bit further or to kind of dispel some myths about things that are kind of like too big or too nebulous to really dig into. So ultimately that's one of our values is sharing and disseminating information about science. Like what is the truth within this conversation? Right. Right. But this, this series felt like a little different because it was while we understand a, a, a general truth about certain practices within our field and while we understand that the science itself has certain elements, I mean, we're adding a whole nother layer. I mean, entering this conversation was entering it from the perspective of being anti-ableist. Mm -hmm. That was not initially part of that conversation though yeah it is a value of ours i think that it is something that we value as a podcast and as like practitioners but i don't know that we were as intentional or explicit with it at the very beginning of the show and that was a huge shift right like we understood that that was maybe a lens that we were trying to look through but we weren't as maybe we didn't put that at the forefront of the conversations as much as we did in later episodes yeah and i thought that was a really powerful shift for me sure yeah and, you know, I think we more or less anticipated some amount <laughs> of feedback <laughs> from people. Yeah. We don't get a ton of listener mail. You know, we we get some and, and we read some on episodes is, is a thing that happens. And I more or less expected, you know, it seems like it's awfully quiet out there sometimes, even though it says, you know, we're getting all these listens and whatnot. We just don't, don't hear a lot from people and maybe maybe they don't have nothing to say or <laughs> maybe we do such a good job, you know, which seems unlikely. You know, people do weigh in. It's just it's not a ton and not every episode gets any kind of response from people. And I kind of felt like, you know, there, I know there are people out there listening. I'm kind of curious, you know, I know a lot of them also are behavior analysts. Mm -hmm. A lot of them aren't. And so I was like, you know, I'm kind of curious to see what happens. And so we we put out there like I, I expect some some feedback on this and please reach out to us. And people did, which was really fantastic. Yeah. And one of the very first things that happened after the very first episode came out was you'd better have people with an autism diagnosis. You better have autistic voices on this show. Like you just can't cover this without them. And so that that was a, a thing I wanted to tackle really quick because I was really personally reluctant to do that for a few reasons yeah it might sound like a sort of a jerk thing to say like i didn't i didn't want to do that but i actually felt like i was really trying to make the right call here and one is that if i ask someone to do this that means they're kind of coming on and they're putting themselves in the spotlight to reveal potentially a lot of personal information about themselves to the thousands of listeners that we have and, you know, I'm sure they, they could maybe mask their identity or, or something, use a pseudonym, but it's just, you know, they'd be coming on to show their perspective. And I think they may not necessarily want to or know, you know, what that, that entails every time. And so I, I was really concerned that I would be exploiting them to just sort of, I guess, feel like 
I was boosting, you know, listenership by having him on. And that felt like, you know, not, not so good. I think to be fair, and I want, and, and this is something that like in that context, it might sound a certain way, but this is something we do for any guest that's going to come on the show. Like we, we wouldn't do this for like somebody who just because we're talking about autism and, and ABA reform, we do this for literally every guest who might come on or who requests to come on. Or we have those conversations because when we have folks on, not only do we understand that like they're, we're, we're putting somebody on a platform that is going to expose them to a lot of people, but also we look at, is this person an expert? Like, is this person willing to be a monolith for, an entire group of people right. because ultimately that's another part of it, right? Like if we bring on somebody who is, and, and we are planning on bringing on folks who are autistic. So just so the kind of like wrap yeah. that back around, like it, the ultimately yeah, yeah. came down to the decision, like, yes, the value is still ultimately nothing for us without us. Right. So like we, we are leaning into that and we have some folks lined up to do that. So that's, that is coming down the pike just to kind of clarify the process, like that process of, of vetting people who are going to be on the show. Well, first of all, we're not an interview podcast. Like that's not even part of the format really. And we only do that every now and again, because we feel like maybe somebody else can articulate a particular thing better than we can in those moments. We're not an interview podcast. Like we've got, there are plenty of people who do that and do that better. Right. So like, we're (laughs) like, we recognize that that's not a strength of ours. But the second thing is like, we would do that same process. Who is this person? Why are they coming on? What are they going to share? Like, what are we going to talk? about what questions are we going to ask them how are we going to have these conversations and that would be true whether we're talking to pavlov whether we're talking to somebody who's autistic somebody like what an expert in another field we would be doing the same exact thing because ultimately it's a platform that is going to expose people to a lot of different things and yeah i want to come back to the specific this point you made about them being sort of a monolith which is is really important here because essentially you got to think about the the factors that go into deciding that someone's going to be a guest. Like, do we just put out a call and then, then take the first rando who shows up at our door? Under what conditions was that person the one that was the first? And did that, does that mean that they're really the, the first one that should be considered? Should we just take everybody and just do hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of episodes where people sort of come on and rant their own opinions? And so there's some amount of cherry picking that has to go on. And anyone we pick has got to be someone who is sort of, as you said, being a stand. And then you have maybe another listener out there who was like, well, that person doesn't speak for me. That's not my experience. Yeah. You know, mine was very different. And like, I feel like my voice is still not being represented. So how do we go about making that selection? And on top of that, whoever we do pick, we have the concern of this being sort of like a testimonials thing which is that anecdotes are not evidence by definition, pretty much. And so someone just coming on to either defend our side or argue against our side, whatever it is, is going to sound like or is going to feel like cherry picking. They were sort of saying like, oh, this, you know, this is going to support our argument. Therefore, we use them. And that we would want someone who could come on and more or less have a cogent discussion, even if they disagreed with us. But I think it'd be very easy to accuse us of cherry picking that that guest or those guests. And so it was. I think a really tricky situation to put ourselves in and that, that guest in to feel like they had to represent a particular position Yeah, where if they were being accepted on the show and I'm sort of telling them like, you know, bring your opinion, whatever. But I think the listeners don't necessarily know what that process is going to look like. And no matter how transparent we're trying to be about it, it could feel like we're sort of just, as I said, just cherry picking. And to that point, like the value and the intentional action that go along with that are two very different things, right? We value and we want to ensure that the voices of the folks that are being served by this particular science are being heard. And we have a platform that can provide that for people. So, so the value is yes, we want to get that out. And 
And ultimately, that's what we're doing. But the committed actions that go along with that are far more complicated than I think people might give credit for. And ultimately, the reason we're talking about this is to demonstrate that, like, when we were talking about these episodes, it wasn't just, no, we're not going to have somebody on. Yes, we're going to have somebody on. It was a long discussion. I mean, we had that discussion about who we're going to have on and how we're going to have them on in that discussion. We had that for weeks and weeks yeah. and weeks on how we were going to do that, what that would look like, how to counterbalance you know, those conversations in a way that was constructive, that was meaningful, that was useful while still having folks being heard. I mean, and, and ultimately we figured it out. We figured out a way to do that. But I mean, this was a weeks long discussion. This wasn't something that we just weighed lightly and said, no, it's not, it's not good for the podcast or anything like that. It was like, we literally spent weeks talking with groups of people, figuring out how to do this in the best way. That was, that was going to be the most useful for everybody involved and the most helpful. Yeah, and I exactly as you said, just re- reiterating the point that it was never a, a hard no. It was just if we're going to do this, we've got to be really careful and make sure we're doing this as genuinely and as compassionately as possible, you know, to to really be fair and also create, you know, I think a discussion that is going to be of value to people who are trying to listen. So it's tricky. And then, you know, another thing is that we do have to edit these episodes. And so there's going to be some amount of things that are cut. And again, sort of the the issue of sort of cherry picking. So we really spent some time figuring out how are we going to make this work if we're going to pursue this. And so we do have a follow-up episode, at least one, <laughs> possibly yeah, more, yeah. where we're going to have some people who identify as autistic, who have that diagnosis, who would like to share their experience and some other people to talk about anti-ableism. So we've got some more of these coming up. They're not going to be sequential to this. We're going to have some other episodes that we recorded a while back. In the meantime, to sort of fill in the gap as we work out, out scheduling those. Scheduling guests is always a little bit tricky, particularly every single person that you add to the list of guests makes that scheduling increasingly complicated. Yeah. So we're working on it. It's going to happen. But I just wanted to address that because, and you've said this before, we've mentioned it, but it's not so easy as like, oh yeah, we'll just have someone come on. Like there's a lot of considerations around how do we do this ethically? Yeah, exactly. I think that perspective of like, how do we do this in a way that's ethical, that's responsible, that is anti-ableist and all those conversations that we've had. What was your like, what was your kind of feeling or experience going into this? Because you and I, I think, had different perspectives on this walking in, given that like you don't have as much of a social media presence as I do. Yeah. Like I have had the direct attacks and the the conversations in those spaces where you're kind of like you haven't had that and you're kind of like hearing it and exploring it on your own. Yeah. So like, what was your experience kind of walking into this and kind of like navigating all that information. Sure. Yeah. So I, I was receiving a lot of this pretty passively. Mm-hmm. I was hearing from other people. So I was sort of hearing, you know, a third party voice communicating what they were seeing online. I heard it from different sources, some behavior analysts and some not, and then having conversations with them about it. And so for those people who are sort of friends of mine who were being attacked, such as yourself, having the thought that I wanted to come to your defense yeah, and I wanted to, to sort of stand up and say like, Hey, like let's think about this critically and logically. And so that sort of thing. And for others, it was, let's have this more nuanced discussion so that I can help you really understand what's going on. And there'd be these really long conversations I had. And so I think that my original orientation to this was a defensive one. Cause what it felt like to me is it felt like privileged people just picking a target to knock down. Like 
there's a lot of people over here being successful. I want to knock them down. Yeah. And that felt like that's what was going on and not necessarily anything beyond sort of a self-righteous claim to yell about something on Twitter. Yeah. And that had me, like I said, come at this from a defensive standpoint. So as I went into actually reading as much as I could find online, though, what I was sort of extracting from it was there was a real experience of dissatisfaction and kind of pain in a way, or maybe unpleasant experiences. And that just had me reflect on it a little bit different. And I also, (laughs) as I started trying to be defensive, my arguments, I was like, wow, I'm making a lot of arguments right now that are similar to people that I vehemently disagree with, like fundamentally disagree with about (laughs) things. Yeah. And that had me think like, maybe am I wrong about this or am I just thinking about this in the wrong way? And so that had me just be a lot more self-reflective. And so that's why, I mean, it was a very in-depth process of me reading things thinking of how I wanted to talk about it and really having me eventually by the first time that we recorded anything, I had landed on the point that like, this isn't about being defensive. This is about listening. And it's about, I guess, finding what there is to unpack from all, all angles of this. As you said, I actually didn't, the original intention wasn't to be sort of an anti-ableist sort of message, but that is what it turned into pretty quickly actually as we as we went through it yeah that was something i sort of learned that like originally it was defensive and then as i sort of read and read and, and got more familiar with things it was a lot more like let's this needs to be a compassionate thoughtful nuanced discussion where we're really i guess thinking about these things that was a super long answer i think that's fair because i think people i think people were having that same kind of enlightenment or that same kind of like shift in perspective when i mean you know with everything going on in the world right now and the anti-racist work People are having these like huge epiphanies that go, oh, God, everything that I've done, I live in a system where I've done things that have been inherently systemically racist, but not necessarily like it doesn't make it it doesn't mean that I am a racist, but I might have done racist things. Yeah. Right. Like based on my own learning history, based on ignorance, based on whatever, like I might have done that. And this conversation has really led me to like shift perspectives on that, too, where it's like I used to implement procedures with extinction in it. I used to work in spaces where stimming was a concern and you used to target that and and moving away from that and recognizing like, oh, that might have been a problem. I mean, it was a problem for some folks, right? Maybe it wasn't a problem for mm-hmm. that person and maybe they didn't have a horrible experience with whatever we were working on. But there there is a possibility that it could have. And when I'm hearing, you know, folks share their experiences about their experience with with extinction procedures or their ABA, you know, my first thought is, oh, it's bad ABA. It's bad. It's bad service providers, right? Like, you know, if you have a botched surgery, it's not surgery as a field, right? It's not like it's it's that bad surgeon, right? It could be that, right? But then you're kind of going, well, but that's still that person's experience, and that could have been a lack of training, a lack of support. It could be a lack right. of care and compassion. It could have been any number of things, which might be fostered within a system. That builds that. Right. It's still systemic in some way. Yeah, it's still systemic. It still comes from somewhere. So if that's the case, then then building building a space to kind of improve that. So early on in the show, we started talking about JRC and talking about, you know, like some of the rulings that went along with that and in some of the use of shock. And my for a long time, my perspective was I've worked with learners who are super aggressive, who I could see where it could lead to something like that going through this, this series and kind of listening more and reading more on this and kind of like spending more time is like, I, we shouldn't be shocking humans. Like my, my perspective has shifted drastically in that space. And that is an uncomfortable space to be in where 
your viewpoints and your learning history are immediately subverted. Despite the fact that we live, that we work in a space where we're scientists, right? Despite the fact yeah. that we follow our data, that it's self-correcting. Like you've said multiple times, like we live in a space where science is in itself always improving. That is a very difficult thing for people to do. Despite knowing that we're scientists, despite knowing that we are always going to try to do better and learn more about the world, living in it and doing that are totally different experiences. It's very difficult. Yeah, absolutely. I think it affords an opportunity to, as you sort of been describing, be self-reflective because we are, I mean, you know, we're scientists, but we we are human beings, you know, we, we have yeah. opinions and values and things like that. And, and we can get sort of stuck in a viewpoint. And I, I think that for us, both the podcast and I think who we sort of are, how our behavior has been shaped over time as people is that we find opportunities to course correct because we yeah. don't want to be committed to a position of causing harm. And so anytime that we can, you know, look back on what we've said or done and shift our position to be more in line with the values that we have, we'd usually take that opportunity. And like, there's some people who are just like, they'll just stick to their guns no matter what, no matter how wrong they are. Because that's, you know, they're like, well, I already, I already made this position public, so I can't, I can't deviate from that. And I am always more admiring of people who are able to say, you know what, this was not, this was incorrect. I need to readjust and reevaluate and, uh, and get, you know, better perspective on these things. And I think, you know, I could see where people could do that in the opposite direction and be like, oh, you know, I used to be like a kind of person and I'm going to, I'm going to really, you know, lean into being a, you know, elitist jerk of some yeah, kind. Yeah. It happens. Um, and it happens. <laughs> like, you know, now that I'm really thinking about it, selfishness is the way to go. And that's not who I, that's not who I want to be. But I, I think generally speaking, those people who can engage in some self-reflection, who can have a value of orienting toward sort of compassion and, and helping and generosity, that sort of thing, being able to admit that you were wrong and shift your behavior because of it, I think is generally a good value. Yeah. I mean, you know, I, I will say entering, entering this discussion and entering this, this, this series of episodes gave me a lot of anxiety. Like I probably wasn't feeling like comfortable with it until about the fifth or sixth episode. Okay. Yeah. Cause like entering it was like, I was just waiting for attacks. I was waiting for like this whole thing. And because I'd had such a poor experience with having those conversations online previously, sure. like it made me, it made me sick to my stomach. Like I was like literally having, I mean, I was having so much anxiety about it. Oh, I didn't know that. The thing is, is like, it was uncomfortable and I knew where it was coming from, but at the end of the day, for me, it felt like this was, it goes back to the idea of privilege, right? Like, yeah, I think of like when I was doing my graduate training and we had our ethics or our multicultural competencies class and we did the privilege walk. And I just remember having this glaring exp example of like, oh, that's how you use privilege. Like, that's how you leverage privilege to give a voice to the voiceless, right? Like, mm -hmm. and not like a savior complex or anything like that, but it was, if you've ever done the privilege walk, I don't know if you've ever done that. I haven't, no. Unless, um, well, uh, maybe you're calling it something different from what I've experienced. Go ahead and describe it really quick for our listeners. So essentially it is everybody stands on a, on a line mm -hmm. and anytime you answer yes to a question that has to do with privilege, you take a step forward and, and then you stay put if you answer no. So like some of the questions are like, did you have more than 50 books on your bookshelf when you were a child? If you can answer yes, you're saying that you have some level of socioeconomic privilege. Yeah. You know, like one of the questions is, have you been free of harassment because of your gender? You know, like I've never been harassed as a male 
in a workplace, but that speaks to male privilege, right? Mm -hmm. And so it's like questions like that that are like basically that speak to like different levels of privilege. The whole thing ends when somebody reaches the finish line, like the other side of the room or whatever the goalpost is. Mm -hmm. And then you take a second to kind of stop and look at the entire room. And we had three classes together that we did this with. So there were three like full, probably like 70 or 80 people that did this together. And you look at kind of like the scatter plot of people, right? Like, you know, you've got people on the finish line. You got people that are at the starting line that never answered yes to anything, right? Then, right. Like, and then you had people like sporadically in the middle. And it just kind of showed, cased and demonstrated how everybody has different privileges and none of them you can help. Well, the example that kind of stuck out to me about how to use your privilege, like that told me like, okay, so I understand that I have privilege. Mm-hmm. What do I do with it? And then in that class, one of the guys that got to the finish line was like, well, if I'm up here, then I'm going to come back to my brothers and sisters who are who don't have as much privilege and I'm going to stand here unified with them. And the instructor goes, that's a nice sentiment, but like, why wouldn't you bring them up to you? Like, why wouldn't you use your privilege to bring them to the finish line instead of you just not finishing the race? Right. Like, does it make any sense? So, and the guy goes, oh, yeah, I guess that makes sense. Right. <laughs> and that was like my like kind of like aha moment with this like yeah. you know we we have this podcast and we have a lot of listeners and we've been doing this and we are also straight white men i i assume for the most part like who straight white a, cisgender men c- straight white cisgender educated men who have like all these privileges right it's one of those things again it's not like a savior behavior thing but it's like if if i'm going to be in a position where we have the opportunity to get information out and make a change like we have to leverage that in some way sure and that's and that was a big value for me walking into this, even though it was uncomfortable and anxious, like I'm anxious, but I'm not dealing with somebody suppressing a stim. I'm not going through an extinction procedure. I, You know what I mean? Like I'm, I'm uncomfortable and I have the chance to walk away if I could. Yeah. And walking away would have been a cop out for sure. First of all, I didn't I didn't realize how much anxiety this was causing you. And I apologize. No, we didn't come into this discussion lightly. I mean, we sort of talked about for for weeks and and all of this, I think, segues nicely into some of the overall interactions and feedback that we got. Some of them was like, why are you doing this? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) which is, you know, fine. But as you said, sort of the point being that because we we have a voice, we have these microphones, we have a podcast, we have the privilege that we have. Can we use that to elevate others? And actually to your question, uh, I have, I had done that exercise. Um, mine was done just slightly differently than yours, but um, I, I have seen it and I really like that one as well. But yeah, the, the overall interaction we got from feedback was, was great. And it started off really heavy and then it sort of tapered off a little bit toward the end. But the conversations that we had early on in the e- in email were they were respectful and even the people who seemed like they disagreed with us, they always had something, you know, kind to say, which we appreciated. And then just overall, a lot of general, really helpful thoughts, you know, people suggesting, you know, you said this, that might be offensive or you said this, but you didn't, you know, address this other issue. And all of that was sort of wrapped up week by week into the upcoming discussions that we were going to have. And it was it was extremely kind of people to spend that kind of time and to lend their their own thoughts and willingness to share their experience with us as they were going through. So I was extremely flattered by the interaction we got from some of the feedback. What was nice is being able to loop that feedback into the conversations and being able to, because I mean, I think ultimately like that feedback, like those first couple episodes, we were like, we have no idea where this is going to go. And then like, as we were getting feedback, it was able to like 
I guess, shape up some of the ways that we discussed or like some of the languaging around some of the episodes. Because the thing is, is like what people don't realize is we had the episode topics laid out and we had yeah. the bullet points. I mean, like Abraham did a great job of like having the main bullet points of everything spelled out and all that. But where some of that stuff shifted and where some of the discussion shifted was filling in those gaps that maybe we didn't capture in those, like, you know, being able to right. like the anti-ableist rhetoric that came through, like being able to share that and maybe give a better label to that and maybe give better intention to that came later because we got great feedback on it. Yeah. We were able to take that stuff and use it to enhance the conversation. And so we just really appreciated everybody who gave the spoons to, to us when they didn't have to, I mean, none of nobody, nobody who sent emails or, or gave us feedback were obligated to do that. Right. And they did in their own time, they did it on their own volition. And it just is, it was really meaningful to be able to get that and share that with everybody. So if you send us any kind of message on social media or via email or anything, thank you so much for taking the time to do that. We appreciated all, all of the, the communications that we got. People were extremely generous with their time and their, their thoughts it was a humbling experience and that's, you know, that's how we got on the track of the anti-ableist message. Well, that was actually another big shift for me as well, because I didn't even realize before that was pointed out to me that we were still using some of that ableist language. And that really helped me be better at catching when I did that. Now I, I probably did still make some mistakes here and there even after that. And I do apologize for those. And I, I'm trying to, you know, be better at catching, you know, now that I have a, a better lens for that, I'm on the lookout more for it. So, yeah, I mean, just just tremendous. Thank you for everyone who who shared their thoughts and helped provide the feedback that that immediately got wrapped up, as you said, into our discussions. I think that when you are approached with anti-ableist, anti-racist, anti-sexist, any of those conversations, like it is all very much so a shaping process, right? Like we're all products of our environment where there's a system in which we have been exposed to that languaging for a long time. I mean, and, and there are things that we have done. I mean, that we do naturally as like things kind of like go out of vogue, you know, that we lose language, right? Like, I mean, how many mm -hmm. times they like, you know, when we were kids, we'd be like, oh, man, that's so gay. Like, you know, like that was like a common language in the 90s, like as 90s yeah. kids. You know, that was something that was often said without thinking of repercussions. Yeah. You know, as you get older, as you mature, as you learn more about a situation, you move away from that. I mean, I don't you know, we don't say those things anymore because they have been deemed harmful and have created a system in which, you know, a marginalized group of people have been oppressed as a result. So, you know, we having somebody point out that we are not quite there in a compassionate way. And in a way that is understanding and allows for the ability to still make mistakes, but continue to kind of move forward is one of the most helpful things on the planet. So again, thank you for really taking the time to do that and, and sharing that with us so that we can do better. Yeah. And you make a really good point that there's, there's sort of always, there's an ongoing shift in language and there just always will be like, it just has always been that way that language changes and evolves over time. And some things get co-opted to be used as harm mm -hmm. and then those terms have usually end up going away in some capacity even the most vitriolic hate-filled ranters tends to stop using those terms when they've gone away right like i don't think you ever really hear someone using like the word retarded or calling someone gay or stuff like that i feel like i just i don't really see that anymore 
Not nearly as much. Yeah, even from those people who it's like they are, they are staunch defenders of their right to be as callous and rude to people as they possibly can be, they still aren't aren't saying it. So that's okay. Language changes. You know, I think if we were to go back and speak to someone a hundred years ago, it would be kind of an awkward conversation because of how they use language different from how we use it today. And two hundred years ago would be almost unintelligible. Like we would barely be able to communicate, even though we're all speaking English. Yeah, I think two hundred years ago, you and I would be considered warlocks and probably like burned to the stake. <laughs> yes. <laughs> what are yeah. those things on your eyes? Those spectacles right. that are way better than the ones I have. And you have tattoos. Right. You must be dirty sailors. People would think we had STDs and all kinds of stuff. Like people yeah. would just always be handing us citrus because they thought we'd have scurvy. That's right. Like you were a true <laughs> scallywag of a person. 200 years ago, man. What a time. What a time. Yeah, no thanks. Absolutely. <laughs> so anyway, I think, you know, this, this whole thing has been, it's been an interesting experience. And I, you know, I, there was some amount of, because I felt like I had the language for it, there was some amount of relief and being able to speak a little bit more, I think, in a language that I'm more comfortable with. And at the same time, challenging, you know, because it was having to do it with a kind of humility that is not something that I've ever been asked to really do. And so I appreciated the opportunity to just learn and change my behavior Yeah, and hopefully develop a little bit more as a human. I think what is a relief for me now that this is all done, this series is done. I mean, the work is not done, obviously, but yeah. the series is is mostly done. One of the things that we started with, and I think this is important to note, is that we did not set out to make friends. Yeah. Like, we knew that going into this, that because we weren't taking sides and we were going to be critical of a field that is is full of people who are strong believers in it. Like, we had a feeling that, like, no matter what we did, it was damned if we do, damned if we don't. Yep. So, like, we did not approach this going, like, oh, we're going to, like, we're going to be so, the, the behavior analyst community is going to love us for tackling this, or the autistic community is going to love us. We're like, everybody is going to hate us. <laughs> Yep. <laughs> and we're just going to have to deal with that fallout. You know, so I think that my relief is that as we continue to explore this and go through this process, it is nice to hear that folks had good feedback, that they were willing to listen and understand and come at it from a skeptical perspective rather than a defensive perspective. Right. And that we so far did not make a ton of enemies through this like there's a relief in that yeah because i think the way that we approached it was to kind of come at it with not necessarily the kid gloves but come at it, come at it from a skeptical and compassionate viewpoint so right but it is nice to kind of like you know go into speed reading and marshmallow tests after this <laughs> right Get <back> to <laughs> te teaser for upcoming discussions yeah, yeah. in misophonia we yeah, yeah. it you're you're right there is a, a certain amount of relief of sort of going back to it but no i think to to your point it is an opportunity to acknowledge that people are not the myopic trolls that they appear to be online. Right. And most of the people who are out there are, I mean, almost everybody They're you know, they're people who are just doing their best who are trying to make their way through this world. Like the, yeah, there's a couple people out there who are kind of like they're dead set on being jerks and, and making life difficult for everybody. But for the most part, everyone out there is not this one dimensional villain. They're these complex, thoughtful human beings who are sort of just trying to get through life the best that they can. And so it was really helpful, I think, to give a little space for them to share with us their experience. And just as you said, because we weren't standing for any specific side of this discussion and we're trying to instead see like, where can we seek an ambassadorship? Where can we be diplomatic 
then it was easy to expect that people are going to, you know, be defensive. But in, instead, I mean, there probably were some people who are <laughs> who are defensive and and maybe offended by what we said. But the feedback that we got largely, even when it was highly critical, was generally very kind and thoughtful. And so people are are generally pretty good. That's my yeah. sort of takeaway from that. And I think that we have maybe touched on that a little bit too. We did the series on like political parties, right? Like, yeah, that's a good point. For the most part, humans want to do better. And for the most part, nobody wants to bring a harm to anybody else, right? Like there are very, there are outliers, obviously, but for the most part, nobody wants to be harmful and everybody wants to see the world do better and people thrive. Like that feels like a general kind of characteristic of humanity. Yeah. And so arguably, I think that's probably our biggest value as we enter this discussion or any discussion that we have on this, whether we're talking about misophonia or prions or, you know, (laughs) ethics or supervision or whatever we talk about, like ice cream in your back pocket, ice cream in your back pocket and weird laws like that. You know, like, you know, (laughs) I think at the end of the day, like that is that's our value is coming at it from a a, a very humanitarian type of approach with a behavioral lens, I guess. Cool. Yeah. This has been really fun. I appreciate everyone for listening. Thank you for listening to our, our rambly discussion today. We really wanted to just sort of give a little bit of background on what it was like making this series, you know, and I think to provide a little more context where it didn't really fit into the conversations we were having, but we nevertheless had something to sort of share because it wasn't nearly as easy as uh, I hope that we made it sound. <laughs> it was not. <laughs> no, this, this has been... Um, it's been an eye-opening experience. I think ultimately a positive one, but it it was it was definitely a challenge, I guess, to just to produce to to commit to like this volume of episodes and to really dig into the topics so that we could do justice to them and that sort of thing. Yeah. And ultimately the work is not done. Yeah. That's probably my only take on point from this particular episode is the work isn't done. You know, we've covered quite a bit of ground, but we're talking major changes, major perspective shifts. And so, you know, keep fighting the fight. Absolutely. All right. Put up them dukes. What does Ron Burgundy call them? Oh, um, fisticuffs. Well, no, he's got like names for him. He's like, so I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to come at you with like Tom Ellington, the third. Oh, then that's right. A, yeah. yeah. So, uh-huh. yeah, yeah. Cool. All right. Thank you everyone for, if you have listened in any part of the series that we've done on applied behavior analysis, thank you so much. Thank you. If you send us any amount of feedback, we really appreciate it. If you would like to support anything that we have done or or are going to do, uh, you may certainly <laughs> join us on <laughs> Patreon. There you'll have access to uncut episodes, videos of us recording, early access to episodes, notes from our episodes, discounts on merch that will eventually happen. All that kind of stuff is things that you will you will have by joining the Patreon. In addition, we have this cool Discord server, which is kind of like... It's getting more active, which is really cool. Yeah, You can join for as little as a dollar a month. That'll get you access to um, shout outs and access to the Discord server. And then on up from there, whatever is feasible for you, you can join for as long as you like or as little as you like. And we really appreciate any support that we can get We and everyone that has joined. Thank you th- to the people who uh, are new to to our Patreon. Specifically, I'd actually like to shout out our Patreon supporters. So thank you to Justine, Megan, Mike M, Shauna, Layla, and Mike T., just a rad bunch of humans mm-hmm. who've been great. So some of the coolest, some of the coolest. Otherwise, <laughs> if you don't have the the financial means to do that, that is totally okay. You can always rate and review wherever you listen to um, our this podcast. Recommend us to a friend. Subscribe if you haven't already to make sure you never miss an episode and you get all of the all of the latest from from us talking about stuff. 
Yeah. But but yeah, do uh should we do some recommendations? Recommendations. Recommendations. All right, I'm going to recommend Rocky Mountain National Park. And oh, that's a big that's a big ask, my friend. That's a, that's a big ask. Yeah, just <laughs> just go buy one and take it home. No, uh, go uh, go visit it. It is largely in Colorado, and it spans the the Rocky Mountain mountain range. I'm not sure exactly how far. I only I've only ever been to one part of it, but it's got just fantastic hiking and camping and wildlife to see. Some really cool scenic drives that you can take so really just just a cool place and some amazing views you know just you don't see see that stuff everywhere in this country so i definitely recommend if you get an opportunity to head to colorado or wherever there's an entrance to rocky mountain national park and go go see a national park do some hikes do some camping you know visit local touristy town and support their their local economies that sort of thing Get a nice t-shirt that says Rocky Mountain National Park on it. <laughs> yeah. And then wear that everywhere. Yeah. Do some like wilderness shit. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. So that's my recommendation. When I went out to Denver, I got to go up to Estes Park. Nice. Which is just beautiful. And so like what Abraham yeah, is saying is absolutely lovely. true. Like, I mean, like I got to go with it, like just like dumped a bunch of like beautiful powdery snow. So it's like as a Floridian boy who has never seen a mountain or snow, seeing both of those things at the same time was just i was just awestruck it was beautiful yeah that's great yeah as this is wonderful yeah it's good stuff so uh my recommendation is not as relaxing <laughs> it's gonna be insomnia by stephen king so I, I mentioned before one of my favorite book series ever is the dark tower by stephen king yeah. it is just this magnum opus of like incredible bizarre horror fantasy cowboy western like just bonkers like there's like the wizard of oz and there's merlin and there's all kinds of craziness in it just to be clear you're not just recommending straight insomnia right now don't go get actual insomnia right okay go get the book the book insomnia <laughs> by stephen king follows ralph roberts and he lives in a, a fictional town or not a fictional town but he lives in this town called Derry, maine if you're not familiar with Derry, that is where it is based as many yep. as well as other stephen king stories so yeah. The story is that he starts kind of getting a little bit like he starts losing sleep every night. Like he wakes up a little bit earlier every night, a little bit earlier every night, a little bit earlier every night. And then he starts seeing things and like things get real weird. Now, this happens over the course of, uh, I don't know, 800 pages. So it is a little bit of a long read. But what I loved about this book is in itself, it's a great story. Even better that it's a direct tie in to Dark Tower. Oh, interesting. Yeah, it is a literal direct tie into the Dark Tower. They talk about being on different levels of the tower and how there are other worlds in these. And there's also a direct tie in to it as well. It's a really cool book. It's like one of his lesser known books, but it is one that you're like, if you're a fan of Stephen King's stories, it's nice to kind of have that shared universe within it. So definitely worth the read. And it made me cry at the end. So, ooh, yeah. All right. Well, you sold me on that. I'm going to yeah. definitely have to get that book now. Is this one, is this one newer or older? Came out in 1994, so it's older. Oh, wow. Okay. So, so it came out was, before The Dark Tower was even finished. I was going to say, like that was before this, the series ended. Yeah. Okay, cool. That is definitely going on the list. Thank you for that recommendation. Yeah, for sure. For sure. All right. Before we go, I would like to give a little bit of a promo for an upcoming event called Charting in Autism. So anybody who is a behavior analyst who is maybe interested and in charting specifically using the standard acceleration chart, but maybe don't necessarily know how that fits within your practice working with individuals with autism. 
There is a virtual conference that is going to be held Friday, July 23rd, which is this Friday after this episode comes out. Friday the 23rd and the 24th. It looks like there's going to be um, several events here. We have some speakers. I'm just going to list off the the speakers. Mary Reagan, Mary Serta, Kelly Ferris, Thanos Vostanis. I hope I said that correctly. Adrian Bradley and Dr. Krista Clancy, Liz Lefebvre and um, Bridget McCormick are all going to be talking about charting and doing some workshops and how this applies to autism. Again, this is a virtual conference from July 23rd to 24th. Registration is open. Please consider checking it out. Thanks. Yeah. All right. If you'd like to tell us about your favorite national park or your favorite Stephen King book or any horror fiction that you have, uh, please contact us. If you have anything you'd like to tell us about our series on applied behavior analysis, we'd love to hear from you. Reach out to us on all the social media platforms, and you can always email us at info at www.dwwdpodcast.com. We do read all of our emails and respond as frequently as we can. Thank you so much for recording with me today, Shane. Thank you everyone for listening. Do you have anything else? Nope. That's it. Thank you. Thank you all for your time and your spoons. (laughs) Yes. I'm glad we got to do this series. I'm happy to put a little bit of a bow on it. We actually do have some epilogue style, at least one discussion following this, where we're going to talk a little bit more about this, but you get to enjoy a few lighter topics, I think in the meantime, on some fun stuff that we've already sort of teased as well as some some also more serious stuff but it's going to be we're going to get a return to form on previous discussion style and jokes and light humor and that sort of thing Mm -hmm. coming down the road so hopefully you've enjoyed this series and you got something out of it and i look forward to being able to share the more humorous abraham and shane stylings with you in the future yes it's on the way all right thanks again this is abraham and this is shane we're out see ya You've been listening to Why We Do What We Do. Why We Do What We Do is supported in part by our amazing patrons. Thank you. If you like what you heard, consider becoming a patron by heading to patreon.com slash podcast. You can also rate and review us wherever you get your podcast or share this episode with your friends. If you have any comments or questions, we'd love to hear from you. Find us at podcast on your favorite social media platforms. You can learn more about this and other episodes by going to www.dwwdpodcast.com. There, you'll find links as well as detailed and shareable show notes. Why We Do What We Do is researched and produced by Abraham, Ryan O, Shane, and Miranda. Artwork and logo design by Andrew Pollock at nogdesigns.com. Video and production assistance from Tyler Brassier with music courtesy of Justin Greenhouse. Thanks for listening, and we hope you have an awesome day.